The scripture reading for today comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us. Lord, you know the turmoil, you know the trauma, you know the setbacks and the sorrows that we are carrying in us. But Father, we also know that you have news for us that far outweighs the news that casts us down during the week. We need to hear the good news again. We need the gospel. And so, Lord, would you speak to us afresh, challenging us, but also enabling us to live a life of joy and gratitude and most importantly, hope. Father, would you speak to us now, in spite of the messenger who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. How do you love a racist? What? Yeah, you heard me. How do you love a racist? How do you love someone who treats you as if you are inferior and insignificant, or unattractive and undeserving, or maybe even dangerous and despicable? How do you love someone who treats you with the atrocious hatred that we call racism? It's a question that I think is very relevant and very applicable to all of us. And I can think of three specific reasons why that is so. The first reason is what I would call the personal reason. Given that I'm assuming that most of you who are watching me right now are more likely victims of racism rather than perpetrators of racism, especially during this time of COVID-19, you know, the Chinese virus, the Asian virus, Oh, yes, indeed. This is a question that you must ask and answer personally. But then there's another reason, which is what I call the social reason. And what I mean by that is you and I may live in 2020, but we've come to find that there are pockets of many people in our society and even in our city who live as if it's still the 1950s or the 1960s, where in their mind they feel completely justified in killing someone in cold blood simply because they were jogging in your neighborhood? Yes, you and I live in the kind of society where answering this question is very vital. And then, of course, there's a third and final reason, and that is the spiritual one. You see, Christian, you are a follower of Jesus. And what that means is you are called to obey the commands that Jesus gives us. Commands like the one that's recorded in Matthew chapter 5, 
or starting in verse 43, he writes, or he says, You have heard the law that says, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. As Christians, we need to answer this question because our king commands us to answer it. And so I ask again, how do you love a racist? You're having a hard time? Well, fret not. Here, as we take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, the author, the Apostle Paul, is going to help us with three steps that we must remember to where if we follow through, we'll come to find that we will be able to answer this question in a way that is pleasing to God and therefore in a way that is absolutely right. So, three things that Paul is going to teach us that we need to remember, three steps of remembrance, as I call it, and they are as follows. First, if you want to love a racist, you must first remember your call to oneness. Then you must remember your Jesus, who is the Jesus of all. And then finally, you must remember your pain from racism correctly. Remember your call to oneness. Remember your Jesus is the Jesus of all. And finally, remember your pain from racism correctly. So now let's kick it off with the first, remember your call to oneness. Would you skip down to the middle of our passage, where starting in verse 13, Paul says these words. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Pause right there, your attention, please. Here the Apostle Paul is informing the Ephesian Christians, and therefore us Christians today, that Jesus Christ made it a personal priority of bringing people together so that they would be one, or as Paul puts it, one new man. And here's the thing, the context makes it clear that the people that Paul is referring to are not those who share common interests, common values, or common preferences amongst each other. No, no, no. These are people who do not like each other. There's a dividing wall of hostility, as he says in verse 14. And the reason why the people he's referencing do not like each other is simple. It's because of racial or ethnic hatred. I draw your attention again to verse 11 where Paul writes, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. You see that phrase that's in quotation, the uncircumcision? Turns out it was a derogatory term that Jews threw out against their Gentile or non-Jewish counterparts, which basically means it was a racial slur. And by drawing attention to this slur to the Ephesians, Paul is reminding them of one of the challenging things that God calls them to face in order to live out their faith, and that is facing the challenge of racism. Let me say that again. Paul is reminding the Christian one of the difficult challenges that God has called them to face as they live out their Christian life, and that is the challenge of racism. And the reason why God wants them to face this challenge is because, as I said a moment ago, God wants to bring people together in such a way that it undermines racism, evidenced by the fact that he thought it was more than enough for him to be willing to shed his blood, verse 13, that would result in people coming together and being one new man and having oneness. In other words, Jesus died on the cross so that there would be true unity, true oneness amongst his people made up of various 
racist. And this is something that we need to grasp, Christian, because there is such a prevailing belief amongst conservative evangelical Christians that goes something like this. Jesus shed his blood so that I would be forgiven. Jesus shed his blood so that I could have eternal life. Jesus shed his blood so that I could live in heaven forever and ever. And because this is the predominant thought of what Jesus' blood did, Many of these same Christians would come to the conclusion that working for racial reconciliation should not be the priority of the church, at least not to the level of priority as things like doing evangelism, discipleship, or even teaching sound doctrine. But here's the thing. The fact that Paul says what he does here in Ephesians 2 tells us that that common belief is absolutely wrong. Christian, hear me when I say this. Prioritizing and promoting racial reconciliation is something that you cannot opt out of for your Christian life. This is not something that only for those of us who have a social justice bent in us or people who kind of lean to the left politically that we should only be advocating for. No, God makes it clear in his word. If you consider yourself a genuine follower of Jesus, all of us are called to promote and prioritize racial reconciliation as part of our Christian duty. And when we neglect this duty, we come to find that all we are doing inadvertently is promoting more racism to flourish outside of the walls of the church. Consider these very poignant and powerful words from an African-American pastor who I deeply admire and respect, Dr. Tony Evans. He writes this, quote, The reason we haven't solved the race problem in America after hundreds of years is that people apart from God are trying to create unity, while people under God who already have unity are not living out the unity we possess. The result of both of these conditions are disastrous for America. Our failure to find cultural unity as a nation is directly related to the church's failure to preserve our spiritual unity. The church has already been given unity because we've been made part of the same family. An interesting point to note about family is that you don't have to get a family to be a family. A family is already a family. But sometimes you do have to get a family to act like a family. End quote. What's he saying? He's saying that God has called Christians everywhere to promote and prioritize racial reconciliation because we are the only ones who actually has the means of pulling it off. And what does this mean? It is the power of Jesus' blood. You see, the power of Jesus' blood does forgive sins. The power of Jesus' blood does allow a person to overcome the dominion of sin in their life. And the power of Jesus does give eternal life. But Paul is also trying to draw to our attention another power that Jesus' blood has. It has the power of bringing the races together, of bringing true reconciliation amongst the nation, creating genuine racial international oneness. This is why we are fundamentally called to promote racial reconciliation because we are ultimately called to promote the power of the blood of Christ. Now, practically speaking, what does all this mean in terms of how we love a racist? Well, it means this, Christian. When you find yourself struggling to love someone who is clearly a racist, you must remember this call to oneness. Specifically, you must remember that Jesus took personal priority in making sure that racial reconciliation would happen, evidenced by the fact that he thought it was worthy enough for him to shed his blood on the cross and because you love Jesus to where you want to promote what he promotes and you want to prioritize what you he prioritizes 
that will give you the wherewithal to fight against the natural reaction to when you are a recipient of racist hatred. And you know what that reaction is? And that is imputing negative generalizations against an entire race because they happen to be the same race of the person who is racist against you. In other words, by remembering the cross, you will protect yourself from devaluing what Jesus values to where you end up closing your heart to another ethnic group saying ridiculous things like, you know what, I'm just done with this, I am through with those kinds of people, I'm just staying with my own kind, I'm just staying with my own people, and you functionally maintain a divided wall between you and them. No, no, that is not what we are to do. What we are to do is remember the cross, so that by doing so, you will remember what God values, and so you will also value what He values. You will value the other racist okay and you would promote racial oneness out of love for him that is the step that you must take if you want to begin this process of loving a racist and as you take that step you'll be in prime position in taking the very next step that you must go and what is that well that leads me to my next point remember your jesus is the jesus of all when you think about the degradation, when you think about the demeaning, when you think about the damage that a person suffers when they are hated upon from a racist, you can't help but to wonder and ask, why does God prioritize racial reconciliation, especially when you see the fallout of racism? I mean, what possible good could come out of racial oneness that totally outweighs the collective bad of racism itself? We'll skip on down to verse 19 where Paul answers that question for us. He starts off saying these words, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, by the Spirit. Pause it right there. Here, Paul tells us something very deep and very profound, and we get an idea of what that is in the two words that he references in 21 and 22, respectively, the temple and the dwelling place of God. Excuse me. If you ever read the Old Testament, one of the things that you pick up right away is how important the temple that was in the city of Jerusalem was for God's people. But just in case you're not aware of that, Consider how the temple is being described from the perspective of a worshiper of God in the Old Testament time. Psalm 84 starts like this. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk is blameless. You see, the temple was the place where a follower of God could be in the presence of God. And Christian, when you understand that, now you understand why the temple is so important. Because even though you've never been in the temple, you have been in the presence of God, haven't you? And you remember the amazing thing that came out of being in God's presence. For example, you remember, right? <clears throat> The sense of finally figuring out what was missing in your life. You remember the sense of finally meeting the person that you've been waiting for your whole life. You remember the sense of, of 
finally understanding the purpose and meaning of your life. You remember finally that sense of being able to look at yourself in the mirror because you've experienced true forgiveness of sins. You have given power to overcome the things that made you used to feel so guilty and so ashamed to where you couldn't look at yourself. You remember these things that all came from the presence of God. And so what does that mean? It means you want more of God's presence as you rightly should. And sure, reading the Bible doing church activities, serving the poor. They're all different ways of getting more of God's presence in your life. But here, Paul is making us aware of another thing that uniquely brings God's presence in our life that those things cannot provide. And what is that? It's when brothers and sisters from different races come together and live in oneness. How does that work? Well, consider these words from Edward Blyden, who's considered by many to be the father of Pan-Africanism that later gave rise to the civil rights movement in America. He writes this, quote, Each race sees from its own standpoint a different side of the Almighty. It is by God in us where we have freedom to act out ourselves that we do each our several work and live out into action through our work whatever we have within us of noble and wise and true. What we do if we are able to be true to our nature is the representation of some phase of the infinite being. As in every form of the organic universe, we see some noble variation of God's thought and beauty. So in each separate man, in each separate race, something of the absolute is incarnated. And quote, beautiful. In other words, what he's saying, each race uniquely experiences God's presence in Jesus Christ that no other race does. Which means when races of different ethnicities come together, okay, they collectively harmonize in such a way God's presence that enhances and further exuberates the presence of God that one singular ethnic group could never capture on their own. This is why Paul says what he does starting in verse 22. In him you also are being built together into the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That you that he says there? is written in the second person plural, which in the context is clearly referring to an interracial community amongst God's people within the church of God. Now, Christian, do you realize what this means? It means your Jesus is the Jesus of all. And because he is the Jesus of all, we must be one with all if we want all of Jesus. In other words... The only way you can fully experience the life-transforming, the life-enhancing, the life-enriching presence of God is if you remain committed to being one with those of other races. This is the one good thing that comes out. This is the beautiful fruit that comes about when we come together and work hard for racial unity, for racial oneness that far outweighs the collective bad of racism. One of the wonderful outcomes that come when we work together in creating this racial unity, this racial oneness, is that the world will see it and it'll be so jealous to where it would actually be open in following the ways in which we achieve this oneness, and that is through Jesus Christ. This is why, by the way, Satan is working so hard in trying to undermine unity racially within the church. Consider again these words from Dr. Tony Evans. He says this, quote, Satan spends most of his time trying to divide us in the body of Christ. Why? Because he knows that God's power and glory are both accessed and magnified through 
unity. He is not spending his time trying to make the world wicked because he doesn't have to. The world is born in wickedness and division. If Satan can keep Christians ineffective due to lack of cooperation and mutual edification, he will prevent the church from providing a model of the kingdom of God to the world as an alternative to its chaos." End quote. If Jesus, excuse me, if Satan succeeds in dividing the church racially, then the world will have no interest in Jesus. And if the world shows no interest in Jesus, then folks, the world is doomed. And it is going to go down into further chaos, not just economically, not just politically, but racially as well. Now, as I asked in my first point, so I ask again, what does all this mean practically? Well, it means this. In order for you to love a racist, you must remember the greater good other races bring into your life so that you're willing to overlook the collective bad racists bring into your life. But therein lies the question, what is this greater good other races bring into your life? Well, they enrich and enhance, and they also exhilarate and expand God's presence in your life. This is the next step towards you loving the racist. The previous step, if you remember, is where you value other races because Jesus value other races. But here, you value other races so that through them you can value your Jesus more. Okay? So there you have it. The two steps that you need to follow, the two steps that you must remember if you are to love the racist. Pretty simple and straightforward, right? So now I can close in prayer. Yeah? No. No, we are far from over. Because as we come to find that these two steps that Paul lays out for us is impossible unless we first take the foundational step that make these two steps even possible for us. But what is this first and foundational step? Well, this leads me to my final point. Remember your pain of racism correctly. Let's now go back to verse 14 and read it down to 17 again. Paul writes, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to god in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near hmm. here paul is instructing the ephesians something else that they must remember another step that they must take if they are to truly love a racist. And here's the thing. This is the first remembrance that must occur in order for the other two remembrance that I referred to in my earlier points. Okay, And what is this? Well, it's encapsulated in that one word that he repeated twice in these verses. And that's the word hostility. Hostility. And the context of where that word is written is very clear that this is not referring to the hostility of racism that the Ephesians felt from their Jews, from the Jews around them. No, this is actually referring to the hostility that the Ephesians had towards God before they became a Christian, or as Paul puts it in verse 12, the time that they were separated from Christ. In other words, Paul wants to remind the Ephesians that they are not merely victims of hatred, but they are also perpetrators of hatred, specifically towards God in their sins. Now the question is, why in the world would Paul bring this to their attention? Why spotlight a flaw in the Ephesians, especially when they're the ones who are on the receiving end of racial hatred? Well, consider again 
these words from Dr. Tony Evans when he writes this, quote, While white theologians should carefully consider their biblical view on oneness, reconciliation, and where applicable biblical charity, those who adhere to the principles of black theology should also consider that through his experiential interpretational grid, it has likewise produced a fundamental flaw in that it is rooted in the black experience as that of a victim. Both white theologians' silence and black theology's victim mentality promote separatism, thus limiting through self-imposed means the ability for the achievement of authentic biblical oneness, end quote. What's he saying? He's saying that when those who are treated with racial hatred, hatred perpetually see themselves as always and only the victim, true racial oneness, true racial reconciliation cannot happen. Why? Well, think about it. What is the essence of how a victim sees themselves? How do they view themselves in terms, in terms of their core identity? Don't they see themselves as ultimately the one who has suffered? They're the ones who are the injured party. They're the ones who are ultimately the victim on the receiving end of things. Right? Now hold on to that thought as I read to you this very insightful quote from Dr. Paul Tripp when he says this about people who suffer. He writes, quote, If you watch someone suffer, you will see that we tend to treat suffering as something that belongs to us, something that we can respond to as we please. We tend to turn in on ourselves. Our world shrinks to the size of our pain. We want little more than release, and we tend to be irritable and demanding. It does not take long to learn that suffering gives you power. As you cry in pain, people run to help you. They offer you physical comforts. They say nice things and release you from your duties. A whole set of self-absorbed temptations greet us when we treat suffering as something that belongs to us, end quote. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that when you choose to primarily identify yourself as a suffering victim, you inadvertently release yourself from any sort of responsibility. You excuse yourself from any sort of obligation to the people around you, especially things that are very difficult and draining like, oh, I don't know, promoting and fighting for racial reconciliation. Now, by saying all this, Paul is not denying, he is not minimizing the victimization of racial hatred. Okay, People who suffer the pain of racism truly are genuine victims. But Paul's point is simply this. Even though you are a genuine victim when it comes to receiving racist hatred, you're not the ultimate victim, okay? No, that title belongs to one person and to one person alone, and that is God. God is truly the ultimate victim, and because he is so, he has every right to feel a sense of release, a sense of being excused, from being obligated or responsible in any way for your good, for my good, for the collective good of mankind, and just let us suffer the consequences of our hatred towards him by us sinning against him, maintaining this dividing wall between us and himself. But you see, God chose not to do that. God chose instead to come into the world as Jesus Christ so that he could show us that he would not let his victimization from our sins be something that he would take advantage for himself so that he could be exalted by it. No, he came to show that he would use his victimization for our advantage, to where he would exalt us in spite of our sins. That's what the gospel teaches. Okay, The gospel reveals God's merciful and glorious love for you through Jesus' death on the cross, his willingness to die on the cross for your sins, 
And when you understand he did all that because he loves you, he has conquered your hatred and he has transformed it to an insatiable, into a devoted love for him. It is a love that is so powerful, so potent, so precious that you're willing to do anything to experience it and to give it back to him, such as valuing what he values like other races, such as associating with other types of people who can enhance your appreciation as well as your execution of that love like other races. Don't you see? It is only in the gospel, it is only through Jesus <clears throat> that we're able to remember and therefore take these steps of remembrance that Paul says we need to do if we are to love the races. And not only that, it is when we remember the gospel that we truly properly remember our pain correctly from racism. We remember our pain as genuine victims, but we never remember it as the ultimate victim. Now, I cannot leave it here, okay? Because I have yet to completely and succinctly the answer the question that this sermon is all about, and that is how do you love a racist? Now I'm ready, in light of everything that I've said up till now, to answer that question. But before I do, let me first answer how you do not love a racist. First, you do not love a racist by denying their racism, by deflecting it or blame-shifting it to the victim. Secondly, you do not love a racist by denying justice to the victims of the racism of the racist. And thirdly, you do not remain ignorant of the race problem to where you assume that your personal experiences of racism is the normal default for everybody else. That is not how you love a racist by doing that, no. The only way you can love a racist is by refusing to return what they have given to you. You refuse to give back racism. And the only way you can do that is if you're willing to go through and endure the hard work of racial reconciliation. Paul teaches us in our passage three steps of remembrance that we must do to begin that process. And as the fruit of that comes out where we have growing, loving relationships with bird sisters in Christ from other races, the process continues on where we are willing to listen and to learn from those brothers and sisters in Christ and they're willing to learn and listen from us. And as we do, we get closer and closer towards truly living out the kind of unity and oneness that Jesus bled for. But here's the thing. As we go through this process, the inevitable outcome will be is that there will be misunderstanding and there will be misinformation given and there will be mischaracterizations therefore leading to hurtful mistakes. But because the church is the only storehouse of true, genuine forgiveness, we'll be able to endure through it. And as we endure through it, the outcome that comes from all of that endurance of this cycle of being hurt and forgiven, hurt and forgiven, hurt and forgiven, will eventually result in us forgiving more to where we end up hurting less. Now, resulting in a kind of racial unity that the world will see and the world will want, and therefore, therefore the world will be open to the only way in which that can happen, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. So, how do you love a racist? You love the racist by refusing to be like them, but instead being more like your Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope and pray that will be your call and that will be your conviction.
let's now end today's sermon with a couple of next steps. The first being, if you're watching today and you started off this message not as a Christian, but now you feel you're ready to move forward and be a Christian, let's take this time now to go before God and ask Him to be the Lord and Savior of your life. Confess your sins, turn away from them, and make Jesus the ruler of your life, the master of your life. And then please be sure to follow up with me. You can contact me in my email address on our website or on our Facebook page, and I'll be sure to follow up with you as you begin this new journey in your faith with Christ. The second next step is for all of us to be challenged to grow in our knowledge, to learn more, to be exposed, and to read some good books written by pastors and theologians who come from a minority background and therefore have a very good understanding of the pain of racism and how they have processed it in the lens of the gospel. Three books in particular that I would recommend are Black and Free by Tom Skinner, Oneness Embraced by Tony Evans, and then finally Free at Last, The Gospel in the African American Experience by Dr. Carl Ellis. These books have been very helpful for me and has helped shape my understanding of my call and all of our calls towards racial reconciliation. And finally, think about prayerfully in your social networks, your oikos, people who are of different ethnicities and yet share the same faith, share the same Lord as you, and ask them if they would prayerfully consider deepening a friendship with you for mutual encouragement, mutual edification, mutual equipping, but ultimately mutual obedience to your king of promoting and prioritizing racial oneness. Now would you please bow your heads and join me in prayer. Father, we ask that you would help us let this message really burn in our hearts, that it would really cause us to collectively seek after and to, to be in search of this thing known as racial reconciliation. Father, this world is literally dying because it has not found the solution to it. But Lord, we know the solution. We know the one who is the solution. Father, let peace, let hope, let love, let oneness begin in your house so that the world outside would want to come in and be able by your power, by your love, to truly have oneness that it so deeply needs. Father, we pray that your church would truly rise to the occasion and really be a church that seeks out oneness with our brothers and sisters in Christ from different ethnic groups, from different nations, different tribes, different tongues. Father, would you hear us now? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.